think through the buyer experience. Like if you can, if you can treat your buyer experience as good as most founders are now knowing that they should treat their developer experience and their user experience, then it's the same thing. And it's really funny to me, you know, if I've ever like chewed anybody out at Vercel, it was people on the go-to-market side who I'm like, do you have any idea how much we invest in having the best developer experience and being known for DX? Like that is, I worked really hard to make that synonymous with Vercel and you're throwing it away. Today, we're excited to have Hank Taylor on the show. Hank is a fractional CMO and advisor to many different startups. He previously was VP Marketing and RevOps at Vercel and held leadership in IC go-to-market roles at companies like GitLab, Neo4j, and Trade.io. And in this episode, we're going to discuss detailed tips on automating the sales development rep role, the rise of product advocates, which is a really exciting term that Hank has coined, and advice for startups and much more. So welcome to the show, Hank. Thank you. Excited to be here. So... I want to actually start off with uh, with a tweet that that kicked it all off and at least uh, got me quite excited to to chat with you. And for those who aren't watching, I'll, I'll read it off uh, uh, briefly. But basically, Hank tweeted out at Vercel, this decision drove the highest conversion from inbound leads to both enterprise and paid self-serve I'd ever seen from prospecting. Any team selling a technical product can execute this. I avoided hiring SDRs from 1 to 10 million ARR, preferring automation that covered 85% of what most SDRs can do. And as the need for that last 15% became too great, I workshopped an idea for technical SDRs with uh, with Ganto uh, and created the product advocate role. And so um, I just want to start with, <laughs> you know, kind of what what does that mean? What, what were you talking about in that tweet? Uh, and, and just go from there. Well, I crammed a lot in there. The first part I talked about, was early on at Vercel. I joined, I was like person number 30 and I've been person, I was person number 30 at GitLab, um, which was another hyper growth one, though I wasn't there uh, as long. Um, and, you know, I was first, I've been first 50 at many companies. I like to join them small. I like joining when I can have a lot of breadth. That's why my title was VP of marketing and revenue operations, you know, two departments. And I actually had DevRel under me uh, for most of that time there too, until we could promote my head of DevRel to a VP position as well. So I like the breadth. I like the early time. I like I like the impact. Eversell, I joined um, the, he eventually became the COO, but he was the VP sales when I joined. They were trying to figure out if they could do any enterprise motion there. So he closed, I helped him as a consultant. Uh, he closed like three, four deals. And then I decided to join full-time. He's like, well, hey, you've built three SDR teams before. Two of those were companies where we worked together previously. So he's like, you're going to do that again, right? I was like, we can automate on, most of that job. <laughs> I, um, and part of my resistance was, one, and I still you know, I still work with this guy, and I, I never will let this go. He didn't let me buy a monitor. Like That's how poor Vercel was at the start. I was like, hey, can I get a new monitor? He's like... I've been to your house. You have a monitor. You're fine. And I was like, oh, <laughs> we're that poor. And this is, you know, April 2020. They didn't let me hire anybody. I had no headcount for my first like nine months there. Um, even even when I got the VP title, like I didn't have headcount for a little bit, uh, which is 
strange for some, but you know, you run it lean and it's COVID times. So I was like, well, then of course I'm not spending headcount on an SDR because we just have basically the VP sales. And then we had one, we hired one salesperson. So I was like, we can automate most of that SDR job. I, th I think SDRs as they're used now are often very inefficient. And I think especially this year, they're proving less and less effective. So the way, I mean, I can get into like the type of automation we built. So this was an open source, like Vercel had a strong open source project. So there was good inbound, um, but the inbound intent was all over the place. And the product signup used uh, GitHub or like you could sign up with GitHub, GitLab or Bitbucket, which meant we were getting Gmails. Developer Gmails, mm, the, yeah, the yeah, hardest right. so you don't know. Gmail to deal with in the world because uh, they don't want you. Um, so what I did was I used um, a previous company's technology where I'd worked, Trey.io. Um, I spent a lot of time um, in Trey building automation, basically integration pipelines from the product database, uh, which was complicated, but the TLDR is we had an S3 bucket that I could access and I could run these like Athena queries or I could get, I eventually talked an infra engineer into building me a specific API that would throw to a webhook. And I got all this usage data and over a few months of trial and error, I figured out what usage data is actually useful. Cause I also had no clue about front end technology or frameworks. I didn't know what a lot of these signals coming in where like, oh, domain alias, like, I don't know what that means. And, you know, they bandwidth used and function usage, like, I didn't know what any of that meant. So I would just trial and error. And I spent a lot of time talking to those infra engineers until I had a good sense of, um, oh, okay, if I, if I use, first, we can use the, the main signal. If someone signs up for a trial, like, I'm going to send them an email. And through trial and error experimentation, we'll figure out what are the resources they want the most. So like, you know, common mistake is usually people will ask directly for a meeting mm -hmm. when someone comes in. Most people in developer marketing have figured out that's a bad idea, provide resources first. And um, I'm very aggressive at giving the resources. I also like to send them from a human's name. So I just plugged in our salespeople's names and like, Basically, they were doing the SDR work as robots without knowing it. And then we had follow-up emails that would eventually ask, you know, what kind of project are you working on? Yeah. Well, I still wouldn't ask directly for the time because that's kind of the, you know, I one of the big problems, and um, I just worked with a, one of my clients on this, is if you just ask for time, uh, you'll get a lot of time wasters. And this is true, like... In, in like the developer marketing, uh, the people whose time you want the most and the people who want your time the most are not the same people, unfortunately. Like that's how you get stuck on calls with interns and students um, and people at startups that will never pay you money. So what I do is the questions asked a lot early on would be, especially during this days with very low personnel and very low resources. It'd be, what do you think of the resources I sent you? And what kind of project is your team working on? You know, and try and get them to respond with something a little qualitative that then 
would show up in the salesperson's inbox and then they could reply with the like, that sounds really interesting. Here's something I could do to help if you hop on a meeting with me. And that's, that's how we would get to the meetings. Now that worked for the first year, year and a half. And that's when that last 15% started to aggravate because you can see the missing 15%. There's no multi-threading. There's no researching. There's no connecting the dots between, you know, what else, like the other people coming in. It's very automated. It allowed the salespeople to focus, but it didn't allow them to give good attention. So you mentioned using uh, trade.io, which is like a low code, no code software tool, but you, you still had to understand concepts like, hey, there's an S3 bucket out there that has a bunch of data in it, right? That data is coming in from various sources. You had to understand where the data was getting piped to in order to even figure out, uh, you know, one, what source it connected from, and then two, also how to how to think about uh, what to do. So, you know, just describe going through that process. Was that something that you inherently knew? Did you have to ask a bunch of people to figure out where it was? Like, how did you kind of figure that out? Oh, yeah, I had to be... Basically, my job, I felt, was to go find someone to hold my hand. Um, you know, who's the right engineer who I can bend their ear for half an hour here, half an hour there, maybe get them on an hour here, um, and especially get on Slack and start that correspondence. You know, and it starts with, you know, me asking the VP of sales and also throwing out in like the product and engineering channels, hey, what would signal that a trial user is serious or that a trial user is likely going to swipe their credit card? Like, what's everybody think? And I get the hypotheses and they say, well, if they have bandwidth usage, that means one thing. And if they do this, that means another. And coupled with this conversation, I actually accelerated a lot of my understanding of the underlying data of Vercel. Um, and I did similar things, though not to this extent at um, other companies. Um, but I, I paired that with like a, a revenue protection series of meetings, because in the early days of Vercel, there were a lot of ways to exploit it. You had crypto miners on there mining mm. with like functions for free. And a lot of it was hard to trace. So, you know, we started getting these big notion tables that I would develop and I, you know, force engineers into their least favorite things, recurring meetings. And every week we'd kind of pick off a thing that we could, you know, close the loop on. And a lot of, you know, a lot of learning how people were exploiting Vercel taught me, well, that's value, like clearly. So how can I search for people doing that type of behavior and start to identify whether it's abuse or just misuse or or normal usage and how do i capitalize on that and tray tray was helpful as a tool there's lots of tools for like this type of etl stuff um and segment just beefed up theirs of course i love tray because like i yeah i've done a lot and have a lot of experience with it so it's very familiar to me um but it's basically just like low code apis so i didn't have to do as much there and I could really quickly toggle the workflows and it was all under my control. So I didn't have to, you know, get an engineer to push right. any changes. So uh, walk me through, I mean, I'm, I'm just curious. So a developer auths in with GitHub, 
And so now you have their Gmail, right? Let's just say they uh, you didn't even have any single user intent besides the fact that they opt in, because that is a sign of, a, of, of intent, right? Not everyone opts in. Yeah. So they, they opt in, you have the sign of intent. Now, like kind of what's happening? Like what, you say you send them resources. Do you send them, hey, here's some documentation. Like here's the links to our documentation. What, what did you kind of automate from that first instance? Yeah. So from that first instance, I'll, I'll go through a couple layers of the automation. Like the first automation is pretty simple. Most people like do this now very naturally. And and I've been automating like as much of the SDR function since my first SDR team. Um, and before there was outreach, like we had, we had like quasi, like, like before there were outreach sequences um, or sales loft cadences or whatever they call them. Um, you know, you could kind of hack this together in Marketo or Salesforce, just like sequences of emails that are automated from the person. Um, but that's the first thing. So yeah, that first email, it very much went like, hi, if we almost never had their first name. So I'd say hi there, <laughs> uh, the default first name and say hi there. And I have a whole bunch of rules. Um, I don't know if you put resources in this, but we could put my, I have like my, uh, I have a guideline doc for oh, writing yeah. emails. Um, and it's got two rules, be valuable and be interesting. And it's got like 15 guidelines. One of those guidelines is like, never start a sentence with a first person pronoun. Cause that's what every SDR does. So you don't want to be like every SDR in the inbox. So the subject line was almost always more or additional Vercel resources. Hmm. Um, and I think eventually I did additional Vercel resources for email address. Hi there. Most people who start a trial ask me for these three things. So I just kind of jump into it so that the first thing you see on your little notification snippet is like, oh, this guy's like responding to me starting a trial mm -hmm. and they have something for me. Like, and it puts me in a peer group with other people who have done trials who have already asked this person. So like immediately the developer mind goes to like, this is a shortcut. Like, and this guy's helpful. So like just with that first line, you've already associated um, the person who's your SDR or your salesperson with being helpful and not being a nuisance. Like, okay, most people ask you for these three things. What are they? And yeah, it's docs. I would look at, what are the three most popular docs by people who have trials? Great. It's these three. And then I put in like one extra line that was like kind of a throwaway line. If you have any questions around security or whatever, like, you know, let me know, but otherwise enjoy. Um, and it would just sign off with cheers. So it's a very simple email. Most people understand it's automated. It came very quickly right in the moment of like interest. Um, and it's just helpful. So lots of people click on that. The email that was important for generating pipeline without like a human hunting them down was the automatic follow-up, um, which would go out, you know, like two days later. And uh, this one, these things don't work as well in the age of like AI writing all these emails because there's so much noise, but like this worked especially well 
um, at the time. And you can do variants of this that still work very well. And with one of my clients, we just did this and it, it is working very well. We just have a run-on sentence because no robots write run-on sentences. Okay. So it's it's almost like a tactical typo. Like it proves there's a human behind this. If you reply, there's a human. Okay. It sounds silly. It makes you laugh, but it works. And the run-on sentence was, you know, hi there. We still don't have their first name. <laughs> Just wondering what you thought about the resources I sent you the other day and what type of project your team is working on. Let me know. Cheers. And that signaled to them like, oh, I should reply to this person and tell them, the project or like, yeah, they were helpful. Like you get a lot of just useless replies from that, but that's also where most of the useful ones would start. Um, so that's like, that's like my safety net catch all email that goes to everybody. Um, and then over time, you I build layer a on yeah. other stuff. So, um, oh, and also with that one, because we had self-serve paid, we would have like, Hey, looks like your trial is about to end. Like, this is where you can swipe a credit card, or you can talk to me if you need these enterprise features, and then list out the features. And so that would also catch some stuff. So then we'd layer on things like, "Hey, looks like you've uh, you know gone over on your usage limit. This is for a person in a trial or who's on the pro plan already or on the hobby plan. Like, you know, looks like you've done this." And those were the most useful ones. If they'd gone over on bandwidth or functions, um, most a lot of the other signals weren't as clearly usable, but they were useful for like a human digging through it. And that's where like that last 15% I alluded to was um, when we added humans later. That's that's fascinating. And, and how long did this last you? Like, did, did this keep working? Was it for your whole tenure? Was it only, you know, one or two years of the tenure? Like, I've used that motion everywhere. And even when we added humans, those were still the first emails to go out. The humans were to add to that. That's another thing that I think a lot of people mess up is they'll add humans to replace automation. But my philosophy is like, no, add, like, automate everything you can and use humans to do extra stuff that only humans can do. So um, I'm sure that right now we can we can talk about all the, the glory and, and what happened, right? But when you were in the muck, I imagine there was plenty of iteration and testing and, and frankly, stories of, oh, my God, this isn't working. What's happening? The world's going to you know explode. Like, do you have any anecdotes of just like, trying something and be like, oh my God, this really did not go well. And then, and then kind of starting out or was it, was it truly, uh, well, you know, everything started working? Well, so the interesting thing about this is these emails, like, and that copy that I was just able to basically verbalize to you. If I, if I thought about it for a second, I probably could tell you word for word what those emails were because I've been testing actually that copy across multiple companies for the last decade. So if you go back to Neo4j, before I built a, the SDR team there, when I was new, um, I had like a pretty nebulous title. I was on this sales ops team technically, and a salesperson went out of town and the COO pulled me aside and said, hey, you're in charge of his inbox while he's gone because I can't lose Ed's pipeline. <laughs> and okay. he's, 
but like he was like burnt out so he needed to go on like three week vacation so it was like hankle watch your pipeline i was like i don't want to do that <laughs> i've been an sdr before and i didn't want to do that so that's when i built there was no outreach so i built this cadence and that's when i first used a subject line similar to the like additional resources i used similarish words maybe even the same words and i automated this for ed's inbox and after like the first week there was zero replies and i was like crap i'm doing a bad job and they are going to make me like go full on sdr and I do a good job they're going to make me keep doing that so i have to find a better way so that's when i came up with the like how do i get them to respond and that's when i came up with that second type of email that eventually became that run-on sentence asking about your project instead of asking for time and asking about the resources i sent and that type of stuff so that was like the kind of like scary moment when i just stubbornly persevered and and continued to like automate rather than like cave and actually do the work i was asked to do um <laughs> I, I just maybe I there's a bad moral there but <laughs> it worked well my favorite is you know you, you have the the grammar police and the phishing and spam filters are all uh are all mad about you know how your run-on sentence is getting getting through but uh, but that's it's it's pretty it's pretty amazing it, it, it makes sense when you actually uh think about it, especially in this day and age of 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 ai i i even think that that's still something that uh that would work but um yeah. and you, you meant sorry go ahead. and i'll say to wrap the story when ed came back he was like hank what'd you do to my inbox and i was like is it bad and he's like this is the most replies i've ever had in my life can we do can we keep doing this like i was like sweet and eventually we rolled it out to north america and the Europe, the Europe sales team did not want to adopt my automation. And then as they saw the pipeline of North America start to pile up, they're like, okay, give me that. like, give me that. And, and then I built that. And that's when I built my first SDR team was that. And we built on top of that automation. Um, but yeah, um, just to wrap that story. Yeah. Well, so, um, you know, GitLab, Neo4j, uh, you, you, you clearly, built out SDR teams there as well. And I guess the question that I have for you is it, product advocates came uh, during Vercel, but, you know, clearly you, you you did a good job at, at those previous organizations building out those teams, right? So I guess like sort of, you know, what was the problem, right? Like, I mean, it seems like exactly, working, right? <laughs> this is exactly what uh, that VP of sales who became the COO, that's what he said to me. He's like, why do you want to innovate on this? You've already done it twice at technical companies. Um, he was, I remember, and I'm still close with many of those SDRs that I hired. Um, and a couple of them ended up working at Vercel again, actually in different roles. But um, I still remember like the pain of like, okay, Neo4j is a graph database. Most people listening don't really know what a graph database is. Uh, most people who use databases as developers don't really know what a graph database is. It's like a very specialized type of thing. Um, so first I get, I get a fresh from college SDR. That's the typical move. That's how you get them yeah. like cheap and scalable. Um, and then you're like, do you know what a database is? And they go, no. Okay. Let me explain what a database is. Cool. And I 
I'm, you know, paddling to keep above water on this explanation, right? And then I go, great, you know what a graph is? And they're like, yeah, like a line that goes like this. No, we call those charts at this company because graphs are this special type of mathematical relation. And we have a bunch of PhDs teaching companies how to use those. And somehow I've got to get across to you what the value prop of a mm. graph is. And so I'm drawing on whiteboards. I'm coming. And, and it, that was great because it helped hone the pitch and whatever. But here was the idea at Vercel. At Vercel, I've got all these replies coming back to the salespeople. When they ask a technical question of a nature that a salesperson is not used to on a discovery call, so often like... Uh, then to them, that means it's either a pre-discovery question, so like a question that has to be answered before they'll even go to a discovery call, or it's a nonsense question that a hobby user or free user like is going to ask. Most of the time, it's that latter one. And if you're an AE and you're trying to wrap your head around edge networks and edge functions right. and bandwidth, like and any technical question you get in your inbox requires you to go ask an engineer like that's that's pain especially when like you know for sales doing well like there were lots of other things going on that were driving us up so there wasn't like that and we hadn't like massively grown the sales team yet so everyone was kind of fat and happy so um but who wasn't fat and happy was the CEO and my head of DevRel. Whenever someone would tweet, uh, hey, your sales team's ignoring me. And there's nothing more painful to like a VP of marketing who's breaking his back trying to generate pipeline for the CEO to come and be like, Hank, what the What's hell the is deal? this? Yeah, <laughs> like, what the hell, man? <laughs> can't you tell that this person is at XYZ Enterprise with a billion dollars and they're ready to go if you can just answer this little question? And I'm like, well, I can't really, and the AE definitely can't. And it's not, it doesn't behoove us to teach the AEs like how to respond like that. And if I put SDRs in there, geez, I'm going to be back to like whiteboarding graphs. So my thought was, you know, hey, listen, I love engineers. I, you know, they, y'all are who I choose to work with, but uh, y'all also think you can do everything. So I thought, why don't I put that to the test? I'll go recruit some junior engineers. Mm -hmm. Part of this was sparked by, I, I worked at Lambda School for a little bit, which was effectively a boot camp for junior engineers. And part of my argument while I was at Lambda School was, hey, we don't have to place all these people in like the highest paying engineering jobs. Some of them could really use the stepping stone of an engineering adjacent job. And as a matter of fact, we had a couple very successful customer success engineers, that kind of like engineering adjacent job at Vercel that were from Lambda School. So I thought, hey, let's see if we can recruit people specific for this, because I think it'll be easier to teach. If I recruit right, it'll be easier to teach one of them how to write and speak and hunt out money than it will be to 
do the reverse, to find an SDR and teach them all these technical concepts that also they're only going to use at one company. Like that's part of the it's part of the problem for training, like technical training for AEs and SDRs is that knowledge is somewhat ephemeral and somewhat useless. And so you see as the company scale and those people become more mercenary, like they depend more and more on sales engineers, which are super expensive and hard to find. So now, now I've got another reason. Ooh, if I can farm SEs instead of AEs, we'll have a better time in the long term too. So now I'm kind of meandering on various reasons, but <clears throat> for these reasons, and and we had the perfect woman as a first like product advocate candidate. Um, but the rule with like any sort of SDR team is you have to have two people to make sure that like you have to have an A and a B and make sure that they both can succeed. So it's not just like one special person. So we took this woman from CS. She had done a little marketing work for me already. Um, and then we went and found a fresh grad. He actually had a CS degree, um, but like wanted this type of job. And that's how we started the PA team. I, I love it. That's uh, that clearly is, is solving for the pain. So, um, so basically, the one the product advocate just title and role is 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 brilliant. Um, but I think you, I've heard you describe in, in in a post we'll link to it in the show notes. But I think you you call them technical SDRs essentially. So is is product advocate the way to kind of make the make the job more compelling for for some of those grads is, is that the reason why for the title changer yeah i never use that term with them <clears throat> because okay. no no engineer wants to be an sdr yeah um and maybe nobody wants to be an sdr period but um a lot of people see it as a stepping stone so when i pitch this job i would tell them like about my experience building sdr teams and how i needed that function but i needed a person who was technical um, and so I had, you know, some technical steps in their interview. It's not a full engineering um, interview, but it's enough to know that they could hang. Um, and then we also had uh, a writing test where I would effectively, um, I, I uh, more important than the writing test was actually the feedback test because I was like, I, I don't, if, as long as you have a baseline of writing, you just need to prove to me that you're coachable on writing, and then I can get you to the to the skill level that I need. Um, and the big pitch for product advocates was, hey, you're not qualified to be an engineer at a hyper growth SaaS company. Like the engineers I was working with at, at Vercel are the best engineers I've ever worked with. Like they're incredible. Um, and like in every facet of the company. Um, so it's like, you're not going to be on the engineering team, not for years, but you can learn from these people and you can learn a lot and you can start to do projects and other things that lead you into it. There's a career path into sales engineering. There's a career path into customer success, both engineering and management. There's also, of course, a path into being an AE. Um, and there might even be some paths into kind of growth engineering or DevRel or other other types of things like that. Um, and that proved that proved true. Like pretty much all of those original 
product advocates are now in, in different roles. Um, if you saw those threads, I think especially on my LinkedIn version of that tweet, you know, you can see a couple of them mentioning where they went and ended up. That's that's really cool that there's that much variability. I mean, I don't know many other roles that could branch off into that many different places. So, so you can imagine at scale, because like, especially with the first like team, yeah, it's going to go all over the place. I think you could imagine at scale, it'll probably get, it, it would get more focused and it would very much depend on how you build the team and set the expectations. So we talked about, you know, uh, getting them from these, uh, let's call them boot camps or, or out of college um, uh, to, to start these roles. In terms of training them, what does that look like? Is I mean, they've they've never sold before. They've you know, in many cases, maybe haven't even interacted with a customer before, right? So, what what does that look like? Part of that's in the recruiting process. Like, preference goes to people who have had customer facing roles. You know, uh, Gonto uh, built a similar ish team at Auth Zero. Um, and he would look for like people who are on the geek squad and like very customer facing, had an aptitude for technical, maybe hadn't had like the training that I, I was looking for bootcamp grad or CS grad. Um, and, but the, the point was like, they can learn technical stuff. So for onboarding, I actually put each PA through a one a one month I called it a tour of duty on the CS team. Mm. So we had a I had a great manager for this team, Lindsay Gilson. Um, she's one of those people who can just kind of do anything, and you throw her into the chaos, and she'll figure it out. So I was like, "You're going to build this team that's never been built before." She'd been an SDR for a little bit at a non technical company, but. Um, yeah, basically she wouldn't manage them for that first month. She would kind of meet with them and make, you know, make sure they knew, hey, you're coming back <laughs> in a month from CS. And then CS sometimes would try and keep people like, whoa, this person's great. They're crushing so many tickets, blah, blah, blah. But we're like, great. That means they're perfect for us. <laughs> um, so that was the first part of onboarding because then we could just leverage onboarding. We tried to tie that up with them onboarding a CSE. Right. So they had the CSE baseline of skills. Um, we would do some extra things on the like technical front, but not too much. Like we kind of outsourced to other part of the org, the technical training. And it just had to be enough that they knew who do I go ask for questions? Cause that's a lot of what early CSEs do is knowing who to ask to get an answer for a ticket. Um, it had the added advantage that once they were onboarded, some of the savvier product advocates before we like codified it figured out they could they could read through all the tickets in the morning and they could fish out they were like this person looks enterprise or this person looks like a future mm. customer they're like that's and, mine. And they could, I'm gonna go. and they could just be like i'll take this ticket off your plate cs no problem and one woman like it was that first product advocate like she crushed with that um she over over her two and a half years as a PA, I think uh, I think she told me when I talked to her recently that four million um, four million dollars has closed because of her of ARR, which wow. is Jeez. like a lot. Um, 
I'll say one more thing on the training and onboarding. Um, I'm a stickler on writing. Um, and you can hear I have very particular stylings, like with my my philosophy on emails and stuff like that. Um, and I didn't require that people necessarily adopted all my stylings, but I wanted them to be very thoughtful and good and precise. Um, and, and some things I would make them. Um, so we would do things like I'd say, hey, nobody can use a first person pronoun in in your emails like this week. And like that's a challenge to just make you think about it. And the thing that worked mo- that worked best was we did um, Lindsay, the manager, called it Mail Monarch, where they would all we had five PAs in this like first group. Uh, they would all submit anonymously what they thought was their best written email of the week. And I would go through it and just rip it apart as best I could with comments. And I'd pick the best one and the best email got a gift card. Um, And Lindsay would de-anonymize it and she would give them feedback um, on all the things. And it only took like six weeks of doing that. The first week I gave no prize. Like I was like, the bar is higher. No, nobody deserves anything, which kind of felt bad. But um, at the sixth week, the only thing I had to like comment on was like, well, I wouldn't use a hyphen that way, or I prefer an Oxford comma. Like these things, and I and I said in my notes, I was like, none of my feedback today will affect conversions. Like we're done with this. Like this isn't worth. Like the marginal gains are gone. Like congrats. And there's like they're very adept writers that's amazing an exercise like that and that's that's very cool well you know you mentioned four million of of arr closed i mean just amazing but it brings up the question of comp so how do you how do you structure compensation for this role with that first cohort what we initially did was everybody just had like a 10k variable uh these people i found they're not they're not the same as like your typical SDRs who want a bigger variable and they want to over earn. In fact, some of them just didn't want a variable at all. They're like, I'd take a little less comp if I just had no variable. And they go, no, you need a little bit of a variable. Like we got to have some levers to pull. Um, and so we had small variables and eventually we settled on like an 85-15 base variable. Um, yeah, so it, it was similar similar range to SDRs. Um, in some cases, because you know, because some of them are boot camp grads, like you can like pay less than a four year degree, like with an SDR, and um, but you got to be. I think when, if, and when you do that, you have to be ready to like aggressively promote, um, which we were and we yeah. did. So that makes sense on the compensation. The question, though, then that naturally brings up is what were they gold on, right? Because SDRs typically are gold on yeah. how many leads you go or whatever. Is are, Were they gold on more on conversion? Were they gold on closed fun, uh, pipeline? Like it, yeah. what kind of happened? So what was great about them not being overly motivated by the variable is we tied that variable to enterprise opportunities qualified. So pipeline. Okay. But we always emphasized and we had like the the notion doc of like their mission like you've got three things you're trying to do every day as a pa number 1 
find enterprise opportunities, like sniff out the money. It's out there and like turn over every rock that you can. Um, that's goal number one. If you can't, if you believe someone is not a good fit for enterprise, but you think they're a good fit for pro, then be helpful to them, especially through their trial. Like basically there was no support for trials. It was the PAs. So help them and try to get them to swipe the credit card. Um, if they're not, if they're, if they're not good for the pro tier, um, and they're going to be like a hobby user forever, and you don't think there's potential for Vercel to like get monetary value from them, then be helpful and push them to the public mm. helpful channels. Push them to the Discord and the GitHub. Makes sense. Yeah. And um, to reference the thing earlier, like one of the initial goals was can we get to zero tweets, like zero <laughs> Twitter complaints about lack of answers? Because it really was like a steady beat of those until we hired the PA team. And so we made that a stated goal. No more tweets. And it happened. So uh, uh, there's a lot of founders and, and early stage teams that that go uh, that listen to this, and you, you obviously advise a lot of them. Uh, so I want to ask some questions in that vein. Um, but actually, the first question I have in my mind is you, you mentioned the the you know the automation piece and these emails and things like that. Um, I don't know for sure if Neo for does Neo four J have an open source product or is it? Uh, yes. Is it, okay. So is your view that that sort of campaign only works or that sort of automation only works if it's uh if it's like a you know kind of that open source intent and you have that sort of thing or or does it also work for hey you know i mean in enterprise you have some weird leads like maybe they it, looked at their white paper or something like that right like i, I don't yeah. know how often that actually happens and how much high intent that is but like how do you think about top down sort of enterprise sales versus kind of that more bottoms up yeah most of what we've talked about today is best for inbound and it doesn't have to be open source um you know getting technical sdrs is obviously better for technical products but a lot of what i've talked about today is totally applicable to non-technical and non-open source non-community-based products if there's good inbound you know it's not going to work to send out an email outbound to say hey here's some resources like right. interested in this like unless the like you have to have to go outbound you have to have some sort of offer rather than resource but that's a that's a different thing and outbound is not my expertise yeah got it makes complete sense um so what's the most common piece of advice that you find yourself giving to founders and early teams that you're working with it's been interesting because this this year, I've gone full-time as an advisor. I have a couple of fractional CMO roles where I play a larger role um, on the team. Um, I've noticed a pattern already. Pretty much everybody starts with they want to know really tactical stuff. They love to hear the, like, what's the copy for the email? And how do I write the perfect, like, how do I make the, like, hero of the landing page or the homepage, like, perfect? And these are things I love. I'll, I'll totally geek out with anybody on these. After like a little bit of that, and, and a lot of my advice, you've kind of already heard bits and pieces. Like you could probably dig for the principles of like, okay, be simple, be concise, be clear. Um, and 
But after that, it often turns to turns to like, wait, how are we gonna how are we gonna build a strategy and an org to like scale for this? And my my biggest thing there, which like product advocates are a great example of, is you can approach everything with first principles. I'm very wary at the at the very smallest stages of a company. I'm very wary of instituting the B2B SaaS playbooks. You know, and I've I've seen a lot of companies like they hire just a typical SDR team with the ratios they saw on a LinkedIn post and uh it's very inefficient or like it lacks the training or the right man like there's a lot of things that can go wrong when you don't think in first principles for your company. But generally, um generally you can kind of intuit like what's gonna be What's going to be best here for people buying your product? Um, and, you know, if you really think with empathy, not don't empathize for the typical B2B SaaS buyer, empathize for your buyer. And that like makes a difference. I think the first principles thinking is makes a ton of sense, especially with uh, with all the stuff that you can get out there. I mean, you have disaster conference, all these sort of things. People are sharing all this advice. Like in the end, you got to take it, synthesize it and bring it to the context of your uh, organization. But, um, you know, I, I know what a lot of founders will say. They'll be like, Hank, awesome. This is so cool. Amazing. You did all of this. I don't have the time, right? You're telling me to go and do this. And uh, you're saying, do all this automation and hire these product advocates. You know, how am I supposed to go recruit those people? And and then you're saying, set up this automation. Like I'm, I got a 50 million things I'm trying to do. You know, how do I, how would I go and handle this? And What's your best advice? Is your best advice like, hey, just hire somebody with really high aptitude and say, hey, this is your job and now go after it? Yeah, there are two approaches that seem to work, right? There's the like, if if you have something that you're, as a founder, that you're convicted of, that you're like, I know this will work, just need somebody to do it, then just go find that person and have them do it. Um, And... A, a very great, simple example is on the sales side. Like once you've gone through the motion of selling like five deals as a founder, like you should find a salesperson. They don't have to be a VP because a VP of sales is going to go hire five people right. to do that job. And then, then you're talking about your, then you got to teach skip levels and like, whatever, like, no, just go find the one salesperson who can like take that off your plate while you figure out and and think about the next thing so that's like one approach it obviously like works you know like the founder sales motion and graduating into sales is like a really well well worn path the marketing it's squishier because there's every which way and people talk about plg and Mm -hmm. some founders think that's like a, a a magic pill out of actually having to sell uh, which actually PLG is the best way to generate enterprise pipeline um, and stuff like that. But um, if you can, if if you've got a hypothesis and a little bit of evidence on a specific tactic, then you can hire a person for the specific tactic. If you've got no idea and it's really broad and you don't know how to run the experiments and you have to focus on you know, your founder sales and or your product and whatever, that's when you might hire someone more strategic. Um, um, 
you know, or someone more generic, like who's like, if you want a full-time person, they'd have to be not just hungry, like starving. Uh, they have to be willing to do whatever and learn whatever. If you go part-time, that's when like I offer my services, like, you know, and I can point some directions, but sometimes Actually, I tell, I've told a lot of companies this year, like, eh, you don't want me. You just need, like, a full-time generalist until you get to, like, a million in ARR. Like, you need someone who's just throwing spaghetti everywhere. Um, I don't know if that's helpful, but... It, yeah, it's, no, that, that absolutely is. And also, I think, uh, a perfect reason for why you are an advisor, because to fill that gap. But um, in terms of all this kind of uh, advice so far, what's your 80-20 rule? Like for somebody to say, hey, this is how you get the most of that value. Is it is it the automation piece? Is it uh is it you know hiring the the product advocates? Is it um is it something we didn't even talk about yet? The 80-20 rule specifically around like sales development and like that pipeline generation. Pipeline part. generation, yeah. Yeah. If you've got inbound, the 80-20 is basically to think through like um the the term i hope gets on the rise that i've seen here and there is like think through the buyer experience like if you can if you can treat your buyer experience as good as most founders are now knowing that they should treat their developer experience and their mm -hmm. user experience it's the same thing and it's really funny to me you know if i've ever like chewed anybody out at Vercel, it was people on the go-to-market side who I'm like, do you have any idea how much we invest in having the best developer experience and being known for DX? Like that is, I worked really hard to make that synonymous with Vercel and you're throwing it away with like one crappy email, mm. you know, or one like, one like ignoring the, you know, a person who's like here trying to buy because we've told them what a great experience it is and we're giving them a bad experience here. And that, you know, that's the, that will be the catalyst for a lot of first principle thinking. If you, if you think in those terms, and if you really think my job as a founder, as a leader is to provide a great experience, not just product experience. So to the final question that I want to ask you is you've worked with some clearly amazing founders of highly successful companies uh, some of which are public, some of which are continuing to scale very rapidly. Um, and I guess like, it's kind of a broad question, but what learnings have you taken away from those founders that you've worked with? There's definitely a decisive nature um, to these type of founders. Um, I think especially of like Sid at GitLab and Rouch G uh, at Vercel. Um there's there's a decisive nature and there's also kind of like a uh they have a taste and they know what their taste is and they're willing to express express that and i use that term today i guess rather than like quality cuz quality like there's lots of ways to get to quality but like having a taste is a good way to make sure you always that you always get to the quality um and yeah it, yeah that decisive nature and that like 
demand for, hey, this needs to like match my taste and my quality bar is, is something very interesting and in common with particularly Sid and Rauch G. And when you say that taste, was that meant to towards uh, culture and who you were hiring or does that, did, did that also reflect in product? Maybe both? Uh, I mean, yes. Okay. I mean, in my, my job at Vercel, I was much more hands-on, like it was very hands-on with the design and aesthetic of everything and the brand. I didn't really touch that at GitLab. Um, so you can see evidence that would, that it was also there. Um, but the, like the culture and the, the type of people, um, and the type of, uh, you know, pace set and, and, you know, those sort of things I think are all encompassed in that. Got it. Makes sense. Well, I, uh, you know, Hank, thank you so much. I think especially the the detailed uh, steps and the email thinking. I mean, now I'm even thinking about my emails when when <laughs> when I reach out to a founder maybe that I haven't uh, chatted with before. Or, you know, I gotta I gotta rethink the subject line and, and what, yeah. what, we, what I'm well, we can put it we can put in the description my guide on how to write an effective email. Yeah, we'll definitely do that. Um, but what would you like to highlight for the audience that's coming up for you? I am going to be teaching two workshops um, that people could sign up for on how to build a technical SDR team. So, yeah, if uh, if people were to sign up through this, you know, what what would be a, a promo code? I can I can give a hundred bucks off. What would be yeah. the best promo code for this? That sounds great. I mean, I think just, you know, if someone says bold start, you know, that's that's easy enough. So use, use yeah. bold start. Um if you sign up, that's at growthsprint.dev, or you can look at look at my Twitter at the Hank Taylor. Um, I'm happy to connect and DM with anybody about this type of stuff. I, I obviously like geeking out on this, um, and I, I thought you asked you know good questions. You had me thinking and remembering, um, you know, through stuff that I haven't thought about in a while um, and had to dig deep on, but. Well, it's, it's always uh, fun doing this. So thank you so much for the learnings and, and the tactical advice. And hopefully a lot of founders uh, and, and teams will be coming your way. Maybe maybe not too much, but but uh, but enough to uh, keep you filled for, for, uh, for 2024. So, um, so yeah, great, great chat with you. And uh, thanks for all the insights. All right. Thank you, Sean.